Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to our best old-time radio podcast. This week, we're playing a show from our archives. The show that you're about to hear was first broadcast June 23rd, back in 2014. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Those darn carpenter bees are going to drive me crazy. Yeah, they just, they were out there dive bomb, bomb, what? We're on the air? Now? <clears throat> hey everybody, how you doing? This is Bob Bro, welcome. Welcome everybody, come on in. Plenty of room to gather around here. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio programs from the late 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. Programs that we remember as baby boomers. We may have heard them on the radio or we may have watched them on television, but these are shows that we remember. So happy to have you along. Along the way, we'll share a few of our own stories. We're just going to have a couple hours of fun. So we're so happy that you joined us and uh, we welcome you. We have a good lineup tonight. We have an episode of Dragnet, because so many people have been telling me or writing to me and saying, when are you going to play another Dragnet? Well, tonight's the night. And we have an episode of the Jack Benny Show with Hoagie Carmichael as the guest. We have a few things to say about uh, Hoagie Carmichael. And then we're going to end up on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas, with an episode of Gunsmoke. So we've got a great lineup, and we're going to get started in just a minute. All right. Good to have you, everybody, here. Everybody's looking, looking good. Got a great show. I was just telling uh, Chester, it's summer is here, right? Just about. Uh, by the time you listen to this, I think it will officially be summer. But in our little neck of the woods here in Missouri, especially 
in the woods at where we live, we get attacked every spring and early summer by carpenter bees. And these bees look like bumblebees. They look just like bumblebees, except they're a little smoother. Very intimidating creatures. Make a very loud noise. And they dive bomb you. And the reason they do it is they literally will drill holes in the wood on the trim of the house. And back by the patio, we're constantly fighting them off. And I guess the females lay eggs in there. And the males stand sentry and protect the eggs. And if you even go out there, it's our yard, right? I mean, these bees didn't buy the house, these bumbly bees. They, but they come out and try to intimidate you. Now, I understand, like I said, the males can't sting. But what they do is they dive bomb you. What are you laughing at? Chester's laughing at me. You think that's funny? Well, I know they can't sting you, but they can intimidate the heck out of you. You, have you ever been out there when they were done? Come on. Come on. Come on, I'll take everybody out there. Come on. All right, now, I, I'm going to open the door here. Now, everybody be quiet. Uh, you'll see. All right, as we go outside, sometimes it takes a minute for them to find us. So just be on your guard as we walk out here. All right, there, there's about three of them, and here comes the first one already. just think twice before you, you criticize me for being intimidated by those things. Yeah, try to eat breakfast out there with that. It's, it's just unbelievable. I, I mean, I stay out there and fight them. A lot of times I'll have a tennis racket and a, a broom, a, a baseball bat. I mean, I fight them. I fight them off. Bumbly bees, carpenter bees, just, man, they're just, I don't know, every year it's the same thing. They just, just keep coming back. Well, what can you do? Sending me notes saying, when are you going to play Dragnet again? 
and it's funny, I don't know why it's been a while since we played a Dragnet, because Dragnet is one of my favorite old-time radio shows. So anyway, we are going to cure that tonight. We are going to silence our critics, and we are going to play you an episode of Dragnet that originally broadcast, was originally broadcast, say that right, Bob, was originally broadcast back on February the 22nd, 1955. That was 22255. And the name of this one is The Big Slug. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. You've just completed an investigation on an East Los Angeles murder case. You get a hotshot call. A shooting at a liquor store on Pico Boulevard. Your job? Check it out. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, February 16th. It was cool in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of Homicide Division. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. We are on our way back from the interrogation room, and it was 8.46 p.m. when we got to room 42. Homicide. You think you'll cop out? I don't know. Probably won't make much difference anyway. Yeah. Mel keeping the gun, that was his big mistake. Yeah. wonder why she gave him the chance. What do you mean? Well, he'd beaten her a couple of times before, and neighbors all said so. Yeah. You'd think she'd have walked out on him. Maybe that's what she was trying to do. Well, she should have tried sooner. You got any plans for dinner? No, not especially. Why? Well, I guess I'll grab a bite with you. Faye said she's not going to want any dinner. She'll fix something for the kids and told me to eat downtown. Well, that's a switch, isn't it? Sure is. Tell you the truth, Joe, she's kind of sore at me. This is her way of getting even. Is that so? Yeah. Woman expects a man to remember everything. Let him slip up just once, it's the end of the world. Is that right? Birthdays, anniversaries, Mother's Day, Christmas, Lincoln's birth, everything. What'd you forget this time? Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. Well, I knew there was something eating her when I got home that night. She didn't say a word until the next morning. Then she hands me a tie. Stripes like that brown and red one from last Christmas, only this one is maroon and gray. Yeah. Said she didn't want to give it to me on Valentine's Day because she knew how embarrassed I'd be. You know, on account of not having a present for her. Well, why don't you get her some flowers or some candy you can make up for it? She told me not to, Joe. Said she didn't want anything unless I thought of it myself and on the right day. See, you don't understand women, Joe. You can't make up for a mistake. They won't let you. Hot shot. I got it. For us? Liquor store out in Pico. Yeah? Dead body. We drove out to the Evandale Liquor Store on West Pico Boulevard. The owner, Cecil Evandale, was lying on the floor behind the counter. He'd been shot through the chest and he was already dead when the body was discovered. A team from robbery detail and Sergeant Jay Allen and a crew from the crime lab arrived a few minutes after we did. They began their investigation, and we talked to the patrol car officers who'd found Evandale's body. 
We were just cruising by and we saw the front door standing wide open. No sign of Evandale, so we thought maybe we ought to look around. Yeah. Came inside, gave the place a once-over, spotted him just like he is now. You're sure he's the man who owned the store, huh? Oh, yeah, it's Evandale, all right. He's had trouble before. How's that? A couple of boys held him up, oh, must be about a month ago now. We answered the call. I see. They were picked up the same night. Evandale had their license number. You got a conviction? First degree robbery. Well, it can't be them if they're in the joint. I'll check on it, John. All right. If it was another holdup, they didn't get away with much. Oh? Cash register was open when we came in. Still full. Fifty, seventy-five dollars. That's my guess. Well, maybe something scared them off. The street was empty. No cars, nobody. Funny they left all that money just lying there in the drawer. That's not the only funny thing around here. Who you got, Jay? Found the casing. Take a look. Mm-hmm. It's thirty-eight, huh? Yeah. Slug went right through him. In his chest, out the back. Right through. Clean as a whistle. Mm-hmm. Sure got me, Buffalo. What do you mean? The slug. Yeah. Can't find a trace of it. Frank came back from the telephone with the information that the two men who had previously robbed the Evandale liquor store were now serving their sentences in San Quentin. While Sergeant J. Allen and the crew from the crime lab continued to search for the missing slug and any other physical evidence, we canvassed the area for somebody who might have heard the shooting. 9.53 p.m., we found a drugstore in the next block that was still open for business. Fountain's closed, that's what you're after. No, sir, we'd like to talk to you for a minute. Talk? What about? We're police officers. It's Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Police, huh? That's right. Thought I heard sirens a while back. What's been going on around here? Well, there was some trouble at the liquor store down the street. See Sevendale's place? Yeah. You shouldn't have let it happen. Beg your pardon? You're police officers, ain't you? Yes, sir, we are. He was robbed just a few weeks ago. You should have figured somebody had tried again. You should have been watching him, making sure he was all right. Well, it's a pretty big town, sir. There's a lot to watch. Too big, if you ask me. Why don't they go home? What's that? All them folks who keep moving to L.A. Twenty-five years ago, I come here. Things were a lot different then. Man could drive down the streets, find a place to park his car. There was room to move around in. Elbow room. Mm-hmm. More people coming all the time, getting so crowded a man can't breathe. Yes, sir. You see anybody who might have done the shooting? Tonight, you mean? Yes, sir. Anybody suspicious? Nobody suspicious come in here. Not since I got back from supper, leastways. When was that? 7.30. Right around in there. Uh-huh. Don't think I've had more than a half a dozen customers since supper time. Miss Jacobs, her youngsters got the croup, sold her some cough syrup. Ought to relieve it some. Then there was a couple of boys, bought Cokes, read the magazine. Well, how old were they? Ten, twelve, just shavers. Uh-huh. Fellow come in for a carton of cigarettes. Don't know his name, but he lives around here somewheres. Been in a half dozen times before. Don't recall anybody else. Well, how about out on the street? Hmm? Did anybody walk by or hang around who doesn't belong in the neighborhood? How the heck would I know? You can't even see the street from in here when it gets dark. Yes, sir. Black as pitch out there. Been after them for the last five years to put up a street lamp. Been begging them. What do they do? Just raise my taxes and spend the money on freeways and gadgets so as more strangers will come flooding in on us. Whole darn shooting could have took place right there on my sidewalk. I wouldn't have been able to see it. Yes, sir. Well, thanks, anyway. I say, wait a minute. Come to think of it, I did spot a couple of fellas. Acted kind of funny, too, like they didn't want me to see them. You know what I mean? I think so. It was then when I was walking home to supper... No, no, it was when I was on my way back. That'd be about 7.30? Give or take a couple of minutes. Well, they were just standing there in the doorway, kind of. Turned their backs toward me as I walked past them. Could you describe them for us? I said they turned their backs. Yes, sir. Not that it made no never mind. It's so darn dark out there. I couldn't describe them if they'd been coming at me head on. Uh-huh. You got any idea how tall they were? Medium height, I guess. How were they dressed? Didn't notice. Except for one of them. Yes, sir. Jacket he was wearing. Notice that. Remember thinking it was so loud you could see it in the dark. Kind of plaid. You know, big crisscrosses? Mm-hmm. What color was it? Must have been light. 
Some kind of light color, tan, maybe with green in it, not sure. Now, is there anything else you can tell us about these two men? I think I've done pretty good to give you that much. Yes, sir, you have. Thank you. I'm not saying they had anything to do with shooting Cease Evansdale. You understand? Yeah, we understand. It's up to you to find out who did it and bring him to justice. Yes, sir. Don't know what's getting into this town. Man ain't safe in his own store. More crime all the time. More criminals. Wasn't like this 25 years ago. Maybe not. Why should there be more now? Well, you gave us the reason. Hmm? More people. p.m., we went back to the liquor store. The body had been moved to the county morgue. Jay Allen told us that he and his crew had searched the walls, the floor, the furniture. There was no physical evidence and still no trace of the slug that had killed Cecil Evandale. The next morning, February 17th, we again returned to the neighborhood and questioned shopkeepers in the vicinity. None of them had any leads. 12.05 p.m., we went back to the office. I guess you were right, Joe. What about when I got home last night, she was expecting candy or flowers or something. Well, she told you not to buy her anything. Yeah, but that didn't keep her from being disappointed when she didn't get anything. Oh, what'd she say? She didn't say. She just looked. I got it. Homicide, Friday. Yes, that's right. No, we're on there. When? I see. My tie-in, yeah. You give me the address? Thank you. Office just got a report from a clinic out on Wilshire. Man came in to see him this morning. Yeah. Had a 38 slug in his chest. We drove out to a small medical center a few blocks west of Vermont Avenue and we went into the offices of Dr. J.Y. Springer. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Afternoon. Dr. Springer in? Do you have an appointment? For police officers. Oh. The doctor busy? Well, he does have a patient with him right now. I see. We'll wait. I'll tell him you're here. I'm sure it won't be long. Thank you. Might as well sit down. Yeah. You think we're on the right track, Joe? I don't know. That slug isn't in the liquor store, that's for sure. Jay says there isn't a mark on the walls. Yeah. Sure had to hit something. Or somebody. Yeah. You want a magazine? No, no thanks. That's funny. What? Here's a brand new issue. See right here? February. Mm-hmm. New magazine in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. What's the matter? It's a medical term. The doctor will see you now. Thank you. In here. Thank you. Dr. Springer? That's right. Police officers. This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. How do you do? How do you do, sir? What can I do for you, gentlemen? Well, understand you took a bullet out of a man's chest this morning. Oh, that. Mind telling us about it? No, no, not a bit. The young man came into the office. Must have been around 10 o'clock. Yes, sir. He told me that he and a friend had been looking at some guns last night. One of them went off accidentally. I examined the wound. It was quite superficial. Bullet had barely penetrated the skin. Mm-hmm. I removed it, put on a bandage. That's all there was to it. I see. They're very superficial. Didn't even need instruments. He could have squeezed it out himself if he tried. Was he a regular patient of yours, doctor? No. No, I'd never seen him before. He said he was just passing through L.A. Could you describe him for us? Well, he was in his late teens or early 20s. Dark hair, stocky, weighed about 170, I judge. About how tall? 5'7", 5'8". Any distinguishing marks or scars that you recall? No, nothing like that. How was he dressed? Slacks, sports shirt, loud jacket. Loud? 
Yes, a plaid of some sort, green and brown. The shirt was open at the collar, no tie. Well, when you called in, you reported that his name was Clyde Beaton? That's right. You think it might be his real name, Doctor? I'm sure of it. Oh? You have to be very careful whenever you treat a bullet wound. I always ask for identification. Yes, sir, it's a good idea. The young fellow was a little embarrassed at first. He didn't have any. No driver's license? It was in his other suit. I told him he'd have to stay here until I could contact the police. What'd he do then? He fished through his pockets, found a letter he'd recently received. I took the name from the envelope, Clyde Beaton. Seems sufficient identification under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Did you get Beaton's address? He said he was staying at the Crown Prince Hotel on Sunset. Not what the letter said? I'm afraid I don't remember. It was the name I was chiefly interested in. I understand. Did you keep the slug, Doctor? Hmm? The bullet you took out of his chest? No, I'm afraid not. He wanted it for a souvenir. Well, your report said it was a 38. That's right, 38 caliber. You sure of that? I've handled guns all my life. It's a hobby. I see. Is this a serious matter, Sergeant? I'm afraid we don't know yet. The wound was very superficial. Yes, sir. I remember telling him how lucky he was that the bullet hadn't gone in deeper. Well, he could have been luckier. How's that? If it hadn't hit him at all. We drove over to the Crown Prince Hotel. They told us that no one by the name of Clyde Beaton had been registered during the past month. They also told us that they had no guests who answered the suspect's description. We checked the name through R&I. They had nothing on them. We also checked the telephone books, city directories. We came up with two Clyde Beatons. The first one was an elderly man who lived on Highland Avenue. We interviewed him and learned that he suffered from arthritis and had been bedridden for the past two years. He had no living relatives except for a daughter who kept house for him. The second Clyde Beaton lived on Washington Boulevard. We drove out to the address. It was a two-story brick and stucco apartment house. Yes? Mr. Beaton in? No, he isn't. You know where we can find him? What for? With police officers. What? It's Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Are you Mrs. Beaton? Yes. This is Clyde Beaton. That's right. Could you tell us where your husband is, please? Well, he's not here. Yes, ma'am. Where is he? Chicago. Oh. Been there since last Friday. You sure of that? What's this all about? Police business. Do you mind if we come in for a minute? Well, no, I guess not. We can't talk very loud. The baby's asleep. Yes, ma'am. You say your husband's in Chicago? Since last Friday. Business trip? Well, in a way, he's a plastic salesman. Company's having a convention. I see. He did a bigger gross last year than any other West Coast representative, and that's why they picked him to go. Mm-hmm. It's quite an honor. He's only been with him a couple of years, practically the youngest man in the force. Yes, ma'am. He even had a dinner last night. Gave him a plaque. Last night? He called me afterwards. Long distance. From Chicago? Well, don't you believe me? Yes, ma'am. Does your husband have a gun, Miss Beaton? What? A pistol or a revolver. Well, I... Well, does he, Miss Beaton? Yes, he has a gun. Does he take it with him? No, of course not. Mm-hmm. Why would he take a gun to Chicago? Would you get it for us, please? Well, it's in the bedroom, bureau drawer. The baby's there. We'd like to see it, Miss Beaton. You're right. Well, the convention in Chicago should be easy to check. Yeah, too easy. Hmm? Well, if the guy was setting up an alibi, he'd pick something tougher to crack, wouldn't he? You think we've struck out? Could be. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, the gun isn't there. Oh. I looked all through the bureau. I, I don't know what could have happened to it. Well, maybe your husband did take it with him. Then. I packed all his things. He couldn't have. I see. Well, we've always kept it in the top drawer where it'd be handy. Mm-hmm. You know where your husband's staying, Miss Beaton? The Waterfield Hotel. I've never been in Chicago, but it's right downtown someplace. What's the name of the company he works for? Federated Plastics. Can't you tell me why you're asking all these questions? We'd just like to get in touch with him. What about? Do you have a picture we can take with us? 
of Clyde? Yes, ma'am. Oh, I suppose so, but I'd like to know why. Is he in any trouble? Not if he's been in Chicago for the last few days. Of course that's where he's been. I talked to him just last night. We have the picture now? Let's see what I can find. I think there are a couple of snapshots in the desk. Would that be all right? Yes, ma'am. Be fine. When's your husband due back? Day after tomorrow. Is he flying? Mm-hmm. I don't know which flight, though. He said he'd send me a telegram. Here's a picture. Took it last summer on our vacation up in Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. My brother Tim's in it, too. Will that make any difference? No, it's perfectly all right. That's Clyde sitting on the rock. Mm-hmm. Who won the plaid coat. We took the picture with us and we stopped by Dr. Springer's clinic. His nurse told us he was operating at St. Thomas Hospital. She said she'd call as soon as he was free. We went back to the office and we sent a teletype to the Chicago PD requesting information about Clyde Beaton, supposedly registered at the Waterfield Hotel. Two hours later, at 5.43 p.m., Chicago reported that a man answering Beaton's description and using his name was staying at the Waterfield. They also confirmed the fact that he'd attended a convention dinner the previous evening. He sure comes up looking good. Sure does. Do we check him out? Well, we better talk to him when he gets back in town, huh? Mm-hmm. Homicide, Friday. Yes, ma'am. How long will he be there? I see. Would you ask him to wait, please? Right away. Thank you. The doctor's back in his office. You still want to show him this picture? So far, it looks like we're 100% wrong. Yeah. Can't get any worse. We drove out to Dr. Springer's office and we showed him the snapshot of Clyde Beaton. Mm-hmm. That's him. You sure, Doctor? No doubt about it. That's a young man I treated this morning. His wife says he's in Chicago. Oh, that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. He does fit your description. Even the coat. Coat? Well, yes, sir. Isn't that the one you told us he was wearing? You see there? The plaid? But he isn't wearing... Oh, I see what you mean. What? The other chap in the picture. Yes, I believe that is the same coat. Afraid I don't follow you, Doctor. This is the young man who had the bullet in his chest, the one standing up wearing the leather jacket. Mm-hmm. But when he came to see me this morning... Yes, sir. ...he had on this other man's coat. Dr. Springer was positive in his identification of Mrs. Beaton's brother. 7.28 p.m. We again interviewed Mrs. Beaton. Well, it's you again. Yes, ma'am. What do you want now? Just a couple more questions. You got me so nervous before, I just didn't know what to do. I had to telephone Clyde all the way to Chicago. Make sure he was all right. We're sorry about that, ma'am. It cost us a fortune in phone bills. He said the police back there had been bothering him, too. He couldn't imagine why. We don't want to cause you any trouble. That doesn't help any. Would you take another look at this picture, Miss Beaton? What for? I gave it to you. Yes, ma'am. You said that the other man was your brother. Is that right? What about him? What's his name, please? Tim. His last name? Larkin. Tim Larkin. Well, now, does the coat that your husband's wearing in the picture belong to him or to your brother? It's Clyde's coat, of course. He's wearing it. Is it in the house now? No, I don't know where it is. Cleaners, I guess. Wasn't here when I packed Clyde's bag last week. Your brother live in L.A.? Yes. Where about him? Well, he lived with us until a few weeks ago, and then he and a friend of his took an apartment over on Bellwood Avenue. You know the number? 261 West. What's his friend's name? What's Bill Dressingham. Went to college together. Mm-hmm. That's why Tim came to California to go to school. Our folks live back in South Dakota. I see. Did all right the first couple of years, but something happened last semester. He just sort of lost interest and quit school, both him and Bill. Got jobs and rented this apartment. I guess they're making good money. It's a very nice place. Yeah. 
It isn't Tim, is it? No. Well, the reason you've been coming back and forth here all day. We don't know yet. Well, if anything's happened, it'll be my fault. I'm supposed to be responsible for Tim while he's in California, where the folks don't know he isn't going to school anymore. They think he's still living with us. Mm-hmm. He's baby of the family, just turned 21. Thought I'd wait until Mom and Dad realized he's a grown man. Then I'd tell him he's on his own. Thought I'd wait till then. Maybe you waited too long. p.m. We went over to the Bellwood address Mrs. Beaton had given us. We found a card on one of the doors with the names Beaton and Dressingham on it. Yeah, who is it? Open up. Why the big McGilla? All right, get your hands against the wall. Huh? Police officers, move. Turn around. Are you okay? Come on, sir. All right, he's not happy, Joe. All right, what's your name? Tim Larkin. Unbutton your shirt. What for? Your shirt, unbutton it. Yes, sir. Where'd you get that bandage? I fell down. Come on, where'd you get it? Fell down, I said. You see a doctor? No. How do you know it isn't serious? It's getting better. You didn't see a doctor? No. Well, we've got one we'd like you to see. What are you talking about? Dr. Springer. Oh. You ever hear of him? I guess so. Well? We were just horsing around, billing me. Pull him with a gun. Who's Bill? Fell I live with. Go ahead. Gun went off. Bullet caught me in the chest, that's all. Where's the gun? What difference does it make? Where is it? Closet. All right, you stay put. I'll check. Where were you last night? What time? All of it. Here? All evening? Yes, sir. Found it, John. Yeah. 38. Found this, too. Is this your coat, Larkin? No. Whose is it? Brother-in-law's. Who's the gun belong to? Him. Did he give it to you? Borrowed it. Borrowed the coat, too, did you? Yeah. Where were you last night? I said before, right here. Been over on Pico lately? No. You sure of that? I'm sure. This coat was. I don't know what you mean. All right, come on, son. You might as well tell us. Tell you what? We got a shell casing. Yeah? From a thirty-eight. We found it in the liquor store last night. So? The owner was killed. Lots of thirty-eights around. Be real easy to check your gun against the casing we found. Well? Come on, Larkin. I guess you'll find out anyway. All right, tell us. I was there. Evandale Liquor Store. Yeah, me and Bill. We was going to hold up the joint, that's all. Just hold him up. Go ahead. Bill had the gun. I didn't have nothing to do with that part. He was holding the gun in the old geezer, and I went around behind to get at the cash register. Mm-hmm. Something happened. I don't know what. Maybe Bill was squeezing too hard on the trigger. Maybe he got scared. I don't know. Yeah. Gun went off. Old guy fell down. Same time I knew I felt a little pain here in my chest. Bullet must have gone through him and hit me. Yeah. Bill got all panicky. Turned around and started running. I stuck right on his heels. Where's Bill now? Bar down the street. Went out for a beer. Is he carrying a gun? No, sir. This is the only one we got. All right. Let's go. Oh, you understand that, that I didn't have nothing to do with the shooting. You understand that, don't you? It was Bill that pulled the trigger. I didn't have nothing to do with it. I wasn't even involved. Yeah, well, we don't see it that way. Huh? You ended up with a slug.
The story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 14th, trial was held in Department 93, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. William Seaton Dressingham and Timothy Wilkes Larkin were tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. The jury returned a recommendation of leniency, and the suspects are now serving life terms at the State Penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. As originally heard on NBC back on February 22, 1955, that was Dragnet starring Jack Webb and Ben Alexander, and the name of that episode was The Big Slug. I don't remember where I received this particular episode from. I've had my Dragnet files for many years. But for some reason, this one doesn't have, or didn't have the, uh, the cast at the end, where Hal Gibney was saying all that good stuff. Usually there was a, uh, you know, the cast members that were given. And apparently this was edited out, and I apologize for that. I recognize some of the typical voices in there, but unless I can verify what I heard, I am not going to say it. So there you go. I, I just, I, I hate to tell you who I think I heard because as soon as I say it, then people start sending me notes and say, you idiot. Bob, once again, you have displayed your total lack of knowledge when it comes to old time radio performers, etc., etc. And that may be true. Like I said, I listen to these things because I am entertained by them. And they remind me of when I was a kid, and Dragnet certainly fits that category because I used to watch Dragnet on the TV all the time, and I don't know what it was that was so mesmerizing to a kid about Dragnet. It couldn't be much drier or pastier, and yet kids love Dragnet. In fact, I can even remember uh, buying cereal in the cereal aisle because it had Dragnet toys in it, like a Dragnet whistle. Yeah, I, do you remember a Dragnet Whistle? Which is really funny because of all the episodes of Dragnet that were ever on television or on the radio, I don't think Joe Friday ever blew a whistle. It was certainly not part of his normal, uh, a normal piece of equipment for him. But nonetheless, I can remember having to have a Dragnet Whistle. And that was probably about 1955. Hmm. I have to think about that. Well, I'm available to hold you tight. I'm available for Saturday night. I'm available and willing is true. Available to fall in love with you. Well, I'm available to take a chance. I'm available to 
start a new romance, I'll be agreeable, cause I'm hoping you. song was Dewey 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 Doo. No, it wasn't either. It's I'm Available by Margie Rayburn. That was a popular song back in 1957 when uh, we were little kids. But it uh, it brings back a memory. What is it about the lyrics back then? They wouldn't say love. They'd say love uh, uh, <laughs> I guess... The lyric writers uh, could get away with that back then. When they wanted to add another syllable, they just added into a, make a one-syllable word into three syllables, I guess. I'm Available by Margie Rayburn from 1957. I got an email last week from a listener in Weatherford, Texas. Uh, Her name is Callie. And she asked me, well, here, let let me read it to you. uh, I I always print these out. Uh, Dear Bob, uh, enjoy your show. Thank you, Callie, very much. Enjoy your stories. I was wondering if you were accident-prone when you were a kid. The reason I bring it up is my grandson is uh, spending several weeks with us this summer, and it seems like every other day we have him in the emergency room. Were you like that? Signed, your loyal listener, Callie W. in Weatherford, uh, Weatherford, Texas. No, I never was, actually. I, I didn't even have a broken bone until I think I was 50 years old. Uh, I broke my elbow walking up our driveway, believe it or not, late one night. We have a very steep driveway, and somehow I, I, I slipped. It wasn't icy. I slipped, and I, I landed right on my elbow, and I knew immediately it was broken. Other than that, no, when I was a kid, I was always pretty cautious. It's funny, though. I had a um, a friend probably when I was in about third or fourth grade. And his name was uh, was Bobby Myers. And Bobby was accident prone. He lived on the next block over, and he would come over oftentimes after school because I had a humongous comic book collection. And if he could get away with it, he would park himself in my bedroom and read my comic books until his mother called him to come home for dinner. But I always wanted to be outside playing, you know, unless it was raining or something. Well, anyway... A couple times, I finally got him outside. One time, we had a neighborhood game of kick the can going. I'm sure most of you played kick the can. It's like hide-and-go-seek, only instead of base, you have a can. You have one person, it, and they're out looking for people that are hiding. And if they uh, if they see someone, they rush back to the can, and instead of uh, you know being a base where you say, one, two, three on Johnny, 
you say jump over the can on Johnny, and you jump over the can. Now, if the if one of the other people that have not yet been caught, once you're caught, you have to stay at base until you're freed, or the game is over. And the game is over, of course, when the person's it captures everybody that's out there hiding. Well, if one person, one of those that are hiding, can get in and kick that can before the other person can jump over the can, then everybody goes free. All right. So we were playing in Johnny Tholen's front yard, and the rule was, we had established a rule that you could not run into the street. You had to stay on their side of the street. Now, we Lewis Avenue was just a residential street. It wasn't a thoroughfare or anything. It was just a, a regular street, residential street. So I had 25 mile an hour speed limit. To, but we still had made that rule that you couldn't run in the street. You had to play... The boundaries were on that side of the uh, of the road. Well, Bobby Myers had been caught. One of the other kids came in and kicked the can. And uh, I think I was it at the time, and I didn't see them, or I was racing to try to jump over the can before they could kick it. But they kicked it, and everybody spread, and Bobby ran straight out into the street, and we heard this horrible blood-curdling, the screeching of brakes, and he, he, he was hit by a car. And I remember that the lady that was in the passenger seat of the car was a nurse, and she immediately took control, and she asked for blankets and a, a, a pillow. And, of course, we called, there wasn't 911 back then, you called the operator, I guess, and told him you wanted an ambulance. And next thing we knew, there was an ambulance there, and there goes Bobby Myers to the hospital. Well, next day or two, we we got word that he was okay, that, that he had a concussion. Mrs. Myers uh, called my mother. Now, I mentioned that, that Bobby was accident-prone, so that was accident number one. Well, another time Bobby was over at our house, and uh, Johnny had gotten a new bike, and it had a speedometer on. And so we decided we were all going to take turns seeing who could go the fastest. And so I went down, we we would ride down to the end of the block, which was probably about 12 houses, right? I rode down and got it up to, I don't know, 25 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, whatever you ride. It was slightly downhill. Came back and told him. So Johnny takes off. Boy, he's, he's flying. You know, he, he was faster than I was. So. Okay, two or three miles an hour faster than I was. Now it's Bobby Myers' turn. So down he goes, you know. And he doesn't come back. And we're wondering, what, you know, what a crummy thing to do. He he took off on, on Johnny's new bike. Next thing you know, we hear this, and, and we look down the block, and, and there's an ambulance down there. That kid had, had, had flown out into the intersection of 37th and Lewis Avenue and got hit by a car again. That's number two. Unbelievable. I remember one time he was over at the house. He was climbing a tree. He's way up in the tree. And all of a sudden, next thing I know, he's laying on his back. Uh, (laughs) It sounds terrible. He's laying on his back on the lawn under the tree. And he had fallen all that way and landed right on his back. Man, you'd think that kid would be dead. Well, finally, finally, uh, Mrs. Myers said he was not to come over and play at at our house. That was the most accident-prone kid I ever saw. Our our youngest son uh, went to the hospital a few times, emergency room, with uh, needed a stitch here, and I don't remember a broken bone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, I do too. Yeah, he was in a cast, his arm. 
So thank you, Callie W. down there in Weatherford, Texas. Uh, no, I was not accident prone, but uh, Bobby Myers, close uh, associate of mine back in uh, Longfellow Elementary School, he was definitely accident prone. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with clowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> Okay, you ready to feel silly? It's silly time. It's comedy time. We have an episode of the Jack Benny Show that goes all the way back to 1947. The very beginning of the baby boom generation. 1947, this show was originally broadcast on May the 1st, and that was before I was born. However, (laughs) my mother would have been pregnant with me in May of 1947. Do you ever think about that? She might have been listening to this show when it was originally broadcast. And by extension, uh, maybe Bobby Bro was too. Who knows? Anyway, this uh, was originally broadcast. This was back when Jack was still on NBC. And this one features Hoagie Carmichael as the guest star. Do you remember Hoagie Carmichael? He was born in 1899 and died in 1981. He was mostly a songwriter, although he did a number of uh, movie roles. And then later, when I really remember him, is he was often guests on television shows. And like many uh, songwriters especially, as they get in their later years, there was a lot of tributes to him when I was a kid. Kind of like recently, there's been quite a few for Burt Bacharach different ones that uh, were really prolific throughout their careers. And people, you know, want to take the time to acknowledge that as uh, as their careers end. And so that was uh, kind of what I remember about Hoagie Carmichael. But he wrote some of the best songs. He has a whole string of songs, but the ones that most of us probably remember most is Stardust. Now, that was written in 1928. That was his first big hit. Stardust is one of those songs that was a humongous hit. I can remember back in the 50s, uh, Mad Magazine used to make a lot of jokes about Stardust because they equated Stardust with like the most um, successful song of all time. And yet it is not a song that has been done over and over so much through the years, at least in a contemporary vein. Am I right on that or am I wrong? He also wrote... Georgia on my mind. That was all the way back in 1930. Up a lazy river, 1931. Uh, in the still of the night in 1932. The nearness of you in 1937, and heart and soul in 1938. That old boy could write music. He also used to, like I said, he was in a number of movies. Uh, he was in the best years of our lives. Uh, that was the Academy Award winner right after World War II, talking about. Uh, Veterans coming back and trying to fit into society. Very timely movie at the time. To Have and Have Not with Bogart and Bacall. 
and also uh, he was in Johnny Angel with Claire Trevor and George Raft. I remember him in particular in one of those uh, movies from the like late 40s, early 50s. It was all about a New York society couple, and he was one of their friends and was always in the background playing the piano and joking around. And I don't know what the name of that movie was. I can't remember. I can't even remember who was starring. Well, if you remember Hoagie Carmichael, you're going to enjoy this one. This was uh, the Jack Benny Show from May the 1st, 1947. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's go back to this morning and look in on Jack Benny at his home in Beverly Hills. Let's see. Maybe behind this chiffonier. I'll move it and look. Nope, not here. Maybe behind the sofa. Gee, not here either. Oh, Rochester. Yes, boss? Are you sure you hid the Easter eggs in this room? (laughs) Huh? Keep looking. You're getting warm. Warm, huh? Oh, I know where you hit them. I'll bet you put the eggs in my violin case. Your violin case? Yeah. I wouldn't touch that thing if I was full of penicillin. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's see. Oh, I know where they are. Rochester, hold this chair steady for me while I stand on it. Okay. Steady now. Yep. Yeah, here they are. Four eggs. Doggone, I never thought you'd find the ones I hid in the chandelier. Rochester, I saw the lost weekend, too. (laughs) Yeah, but Miss Milan got a better payoff than you did. I guess so. You know, Rochester, it was awfully nice of you to color and hide these eggs so I could have fun on Easter Sunday. What made you do it? Well, last year I didn't, and when you got up in the morning, you cried your little blue eyes out. (laughs) I did not. I never cried. Nothing could upset me that much. (laughs) What are you laughing at? When Shirley Temple got married, you locked yourself in the room for three days. (laughs) Rochester. And when you finally came out, you tore up all your pictures of Margaret O'Brien. Oh, stop making up stories. Imagine me and Margaret O'Brien. She's young enough to be my daughter. So was Theta Barra, but that didn't slow you down. <laughs> I've told you dozens of times that Theta and I were just good friends. Now, Rochester, I want you to take these four eggs and put them away for me. But, boss, I hid five of them all together. Five? Well, let's see. Maybe the other one is hidden behind the... I'll get her, Rochester. Maybe they're delivering my new car. Hello, Jack. Why, Mary, happy Easter. Come on in. Say, that's a good-looking Easter outfit you have on. And that hat. Do you really like the hat, Jack? Like it? Why, it looks beautiful on you. If you think it looks good on me, you should have seen it on Tom Brenneman. (laughs) Tom Brenneman? Oh, do you go to his program, Breakfast in Hollywood? Sure, I go all the time. I was even there the morning you won the orchid. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Gee, I'll never forget the look on the loser's face. Poor thing, she came all the way from Iowa. (laughs) 
But, Mary, all dressed up in your Easter outfit, where have you been? Well, Jack, you know, on Easter Sunday, most of the movie stars walk down Wilshire Boulevard, and I went along to see the parade. Oh. Did you see any celebrities? Oh, sure. I saw lots of them. I saw Bing Crosby. Crosby, eh? Was Bing dressed up for Easter? Was he? I've never seen him so formal. He was wearing patent leather shoes, gray spats, striped pants, and a cutaway pajama top. (laughs) Who else did you see on the boulevard, Mary? Well, I saw Gary Cooper and his wife. Uh Mrs. Cooper was wearing a beautiful green dress with fox trim and gold accessories. She looked lovely. And what was Gary wearing? Brown shoes, tan slacks, and a light jacket. Oh, did he have a hat on? I couldn't tell. It was cloudy. (laughs) Oh. Oh. And I saw Shirley Temple. I need... I'm not interested in her. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Jack. I thought you'd forgiven her already. Now, let me think. Oh, yes, I saw Van Johnson. Van Johnson? Yes, and you know, Jack, I feel very sorry for the poor guy. Every step he took, he was followed by dozens of girls. They just kept trailing after him for miles. For miles? My goodness, you think those silly kids would get tired. Yeah. Jack, may I have a chair? My feet are killing me. <laughs> Here, Mary, you can sit in this armchair. Thanks. Ah, gee, it's good to sit in it. Hey, boss, this Lipton just found the other egg. <laughs> <laughs> well, hurry, Rochester, get her a towel. And... <laughs> Never mind the towel, just bring a handful of corn. <laughs> You know, Mary, every Easter, there's another... I'll get it, Rochester. That must be my new car. Phil! Hiya, Jackson. Hello, Levy. Long time no see. (laughs) Hello, Curly. Come on in. Say, Phil. Phil, we missed you in San Francisco. I know. uh, I heard the program. (laughs) (laughs) What? You need me, Jackson. You need me. Phil. Like Scotch needs soda, your program just don't fizz without the kid, Jackson. Phil, I need you like a moose needs a hat rack. (laughs) Believe me. Anyway, you should have been up there with us, Phil. We had a wonderful time. San Francisco's such a swell town. You don't have to tell me about Frisco, Livy. I organized my first band there. You, you what, Phil? I started my first band up there. San Francisco sure gone through a lot. Your band and the earthquake. They can take it, can't they? Gee whiz, I'll never forget my first band, Jackson. It was just a little three-piece outfit of saxophone, piano, and drums. And then we added Frankie, my guitar player. Say, Phil, how'd you happen to hire Frankie? Well, we didn't exactly hire him. You see, we was playing at a wedding and they couldn't afford to pay us, so they gave us the groom. The groom? What happened to the bride? Oh, she changed her name, started singing with some other band. I don't know what... Really? What's her name now? Carmen Lombardo. <laughs> Bill, for your information, Carmen Lombardo is a man. Well, maybe it was Carmen Miranda. I don't remember girls' names. I don't fool with dames no more. What do I know about it? <laughs> Can I get it, boss? No, I better answer the door. I'm expecting my new car. Hey, wait a minute, Jackson. I can't believe it. Did you buy a new car? No, he entered Bob Hope's jingle contest. <laughs> yeah. Jack, you didn't send in that jingle you wrote. Certainly, and I think it ought to win. What was the jingle he wrote, Livy? My favorite brunette, and I love him still, is Honest Abe on a $5 bill. <laughs> well, I thought that was pretty good. Go ahead and answer it, Rochester. Okay. 
Boss, boss, it is your new car. It's a beautiful, light, gray color. Uh-oh, my mistake. It's Mr. Wilson in a new suit. <laughs> oh, well, steer him. I show him in, Rochester. Hello, Jack, Mary, Phil. Hello, oh, oh, Don. Great, kid. Gosh, Don, you sure look handsome in your Easter outfit. Yeah, Dante, where'd you buy that nifty-looking suit? Oh, same place I get all my clothes. At Hart Schaffner, Marks, and O'Reilly. <laughs> All right, don't you mean just Hart Schaffner and Marks? <laughs> when I buy a suit, they call in extra help <laughs> That I can understand The fellow who makes your pants was an engineer on Boulder Dam <laughs> But Don, we were just talking about being up in San Francisco Did you have a good time up there? Oh, did I? You know, Jack, I love that town They have the most wonderful restaurants and the best food in the world They certainly have I ate at John's Rendezvous, then I ate at the Tonga Room Then I ate the Popagaya Room in the Fairmont then I ate at Roberts and the Nugget, and then I ate at Omar Khayyam. Gee. And then on the second day, I ate at... What? <laughs> the next day, I was eating at the Mark Hopkins, and right in the middle of dinner, they ran out of food. The Mark Hopkins? No, San Francisco. Oh. Well, speaking of food has made me hungry. Hey, let's go out in the kitchen, kids, and get some sandwich. What? Oh, you had a Yes, for sure. <laughs> Those sandwiches were very good They certainly were Thanks Mr. Wilson, would you like another bucket of coffee? He's had enough Now look, kid Isn't anybody going to say hello to me? Oh, Dennis Dennis, when did you come in? Oh, I've been here all the time I was standing behind Mr. Wilson's right leg <laughs> Oh well, Say, kid, I, I tried to reach you on the phone last night But nobody answered Where were you? Oh, my mother took me to the circus Well, well did you enjoy it? Yeah, and you should see those girls on the flying trapeze. They wore tights. <laughs> Dennis, they always wear tights. Say, those trapeze acts are dangerous. Did any of them fall? No, I guess they were all buttoned up. <laughs> she didn't mean that. Oh. Hey, how is the circus this year, kid? Oh, it's swell. In one act, they shot a man out of the cannon, and he landed right in my mother's lap. My God, what did your mother do? She hung on to him and yelled, I have a man in the balcony, doctor! <laughs> oh, boy. Dennis, wasn't your father there? He was the one who aimed the cannon at my mother. <laughs> oh, stop. Aim the cannon at his mother. <laughs> anything. They say anything. Dennis, how'd you like the clowns? Oh, they were all right, I guess. What do you mean, you guess? The clowns are big stars. They're very funny. But how come they've only got one show? <laughs> Dennis, just because you and Phil have two shows doesn't mean that everybody has to have them. Let me know. tell you something, Jackson. Hold it a minute. Not only have I got two shows, but while you were in San Francisco, I signed up to make a new picture. A new picture, Phil? What's the name of it? The Keg and I. <laughs> oh, Harris, you may not be Frederick March, but you're the best years of anybody's life. <laughs> Now I've heard everything. Phil, Phil, let me tell you something. You were only... <laughs> Phil, you were only kidding about making a picture. 
I'd like to get a new cast sometime. <laughs> but it may, it may surprise you to know that right now there's a deal pending where I'm going to be starred in a picture for Samuel Goldwyn. Samuel Goldwyn? Yes. He makes great pictures, and he's the kind of a producer I want to be with. I'll bet Mr. Goldwyn has to work very hard to support his family. He's got 30 daughters. What? The Goldwyn girls. <laughs> They're not his daughters, then. But anyway, Don, if this deal we're making comes through, it'll really be sensational. You know, Mr. Goldwyn is begging me to consider his offer. Begging you? <laughs> what are you laughing at? Well, tell him what happened yesterday when you were out to his studio. Mary. Hey, what was it, Livy? Mary, if you open your mouth, I'll never tell you another thing again. <laughs> Come on, Mary. Tell us what happened when Jack went out to see Mr. Goldwyn. Well, about two oh. o'clock yesterday afternoon, Rochester drove Jack out to the studio. <laughs> There's the main gate, Rochester. I'll get off here. Uh, Rochester, you wait right here in the car for me. Boss, do you mind if I lean against that new Cadillac over there? It's good for my morale. <laughs> no, no, as long as you wait here. Gee, what a high-class studio. Hmm. Look at the way they got Frederick Marches. Picture plastered all over. I beg your pardon, sir. Huh? You can't go through this gate without a pass. A pass? Well, perhaps you don't recognize me. If you knew who you were talking to, you'd let me go right in. Oh, no, I wouldn't, Mr. Benny. <laughs> oh, well, maybe I have a pass in my wallet. I'll take a look. Well? Wait till I open it. There. First time this year, Mr. Benny? <laughs> no, no, no. Now, let's see. Here's a pass for Warner Brothers. Here's one for Universal International. Here's one for Biograph. Oh, here's something I don't need anymore. See, my draft card. You know, you can tear them up now, you know. You could have torn that one up in 1918. <laughs> you don't have to be so... Oh, wait a minute, here it is. Gate pass to Samuel Goldwyn Studios. Now, Mr. Goldwyn's office is right through that door. You go right down the hall and turn to the left. Thank you. da da dee da dum da dee da dum da dum da dee da da dum Oh, hello. Hello, Mr. Benny. Hello. Hello, Mr. Benny. Oh, hello. Hello, Mr. Benny. See, those Goldwyn girls are beautiful. <laughs> now... Let's see. Gee, won't Mr. Goldwyn be surprised to see me? I hope he's... Oh, this must be his office here. I, I beg your pardon, miss, but is, is this Mr. Goldwyn's office? Yes, sir. Well, will you tell him that Mr. Benny is here to see him? One moment, please. Mr. Goldwyn, uh, Mr. Benny is here to see you. I'll find out. What is it you wish to see Mr. Goldwyn about? 
uh, a picture. He wishes to see you about a picture. Yes, sir. He told me to give you one out of the top drawer. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you misunderstood. You see, I want to talk about... I want to talk to him about making a picture. You see, a movie. Oh, oh just a moment. Yeah. Mr. Goldwyn, Mr. Benny wants to talk to you about making a picture. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Goldwyn is busy right now. Would you care to wait? Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Goldwyn. Well, Hoagie. Hoagie Carmichael. Hello, Jack. Hoagie, here, here I am waiting to go into the office and you came out. Uh, I didn't know you were in there. I've been in that Goldman's office since 10 o'clock this morning. Since 10 o'clock this morning, eh? What were you doing in there all the time? I was just trying to convince him that my name is Hoagie and not Hugo. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It happened at the Academy Awards ceremonies when Mr. Goldwyn accidentally called you Hugo instead of Hoagie, but it was just a slight mistake. A slight mistake? Jack. For 25 years, I built up the name of Hoagie, Hoagie Carmichael, and it wasn't easy. I remember when I first started writing songs, I used to sit up nights, no food, hardly enough money to pay the rent. I was ready to quit, but my wife encouraged me. She said, Hoagie, you can do it. My mother encouraged me. She said, Hoagie, don't give up. My friends encouraged me, Hoagie, stick to it. And they were right. I can remember those great songs, Stardust by Hoagie Carmichael. Lazy Bones by Hoagie Carmichael. Old Buttermilk Sky by Hoagie Carmichael. They were all great, Hoagie. And who gets all the credit? Some no-talent jerk named Hugo. (laughs) Well, Hoagie, Hoagie, maybe I can help you. Oh, I wish you would, Jack. All I am now is an unknown character with a million dollars. Whoops! Did you say something, Jack? No, no, it's just that when I hear figures like that, something <laughs> happens, something happens in my stomach, you know? Oh, you mean just because I said a million dollars, I did it again. But getting back to you, Hoagie, don't worry. Hoagie, I'll clear up your name for you. I've got a big listening audience, and if you want to come on my program and do one of your songs, I'll let everybody know it was written by Hoagie Carmichael, not Hugo. Uh, guys, if you do that, I'd be very grateful, Jack. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll sing Old Buttermilk Sky with a special arrangement that will include your quartet, the sportsman. My quartet? No, I don't think that that would be... (laughs) Now, just a minute. Uh, I've got a copy of it right here. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Try to visualize it, Jack. What? Well, here's the way it would go. The introduction starts with full orchestra. Old Buttermilk Sky... I'm a-keepin' my eye peeled on you But what's a good word tonight? Are you gonna be mellow tonight? Tonight, L-S-M-F-T Have a cigarette for Donzie and we We're as happy as a Christmas tree Heading for the one we love I'm gonna pop her the question That question wouldn't you like a lucky strike? Yes, it'll be easy, so easy. Well, that's the one that she will like. L-S-M-F-T. L-S-M-F-T. Have a cigarette for Donzie and we. We're as happy as a Christmas tree. Heading for the one we love. 
Three day won't fail you when you need no more. No. Hang a package on her hitch and Lucky for the one you love, the one you love. So round and so firm. So round and so firm. That's part of their churn. That's part of their churn. Will they be naturally mild tonight? Yes, sir. Why, sure, you bet that's lucky strike. What do you think, Jack? Uh, could you visualize what I'm telling you? Could I? Hoagie, I could even hear the applause. That's a wonderful song. Hoagie, would you mind autographing that copy for me? Oh, not at all. Thanks. So long, Jack. So long. Gee, that was nice of Hoagie to... Well, what do you know? He signed it, Hugo Carmichael. <laughs> he really is confused, you know. Mr. Goldwyn is waiting. Oh, yes, 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 thank you. Mr. Goldwyn? To go in? Hmm? Come right in. Oh. <laughs> Mr. Gowen, uh, Mr. Gowen, I hope you don't mind my breaking in without, without an appointment. No, no. It's always nice to see you. Sit down, Bob. <laughs> No, no, no. See, my name is Jack, Jack Benny. Oh, yes. Well, Jack, what can I do for you? Mr. Gowen, I've come here to give you the greatest opportunity of your life. Opportunity? Yes. When I tell you what I've got in my mind, it'll make you the greatest producer in the motion picture industry. This is an opportunity that comes only once... Pardon me. Hello. Hello, Fame of Home magazine? Yes, I produce the best years of our lives. Yes, that picture won nine awards for the best picture, for direction, for editing, for musical score, for story, for best actor, for best supporting actor, a special award for Harold Russell, and also the Tolbert Award. That's right. Thank you very much. Now, Jack, what was this opportunity you were going to give me? Well, let me, let's put it this way. Mr. Gowen, your studio won many Academy Awards this year, and I thought maybe you'd like to win them again next year. I certainly would. What is your suggestion? Well, have you ever thought of making a picture starring Jack Benny? <laughs> no. Let me help you up, Mr. Gowen. <laughs> No, let me rest here a while. <laughs> oh, oh. What we... <laughs> now, what were you saying, Jack? Well, what I was getting at... Pardon me, Mr. Goldwyn. Excuse me, Jack. What is it, Pat? Oh, Mr. Goldwyn, two blueprints have been submitted for the set on Stage 8, the reproduction of the George Washington Bridge overlooking New York Harbor. Yes. Now, on both sets, the harbor is always in evidence. However, set number one with just the harbor can be constructed for only a million dollars. Whoops! <laughs> Did you... 
Did you say something, Jack? No, no. No, no. No, not a thing. On the other hand, in set number two, we can build the harbor, the bridge, and the skyline for an extra million. So you see, it's entirely up to you, Mr. Goldwyn, whether you want to spend one million... Whoops. ...or two million. Whoops, whoops. What's the matter with you, Jack? You sound like a tugboat. I'm sorry. Pat, I'll take number two. Uh, Yes, Mr. Goldwyn. Now, what were you you talking about, Mr. Goldwyn, I'm not going to beat around the bush. If you make a picture with me, I'm sure we'll win the Academy Award next year. I've got hidden talents. (laughs) (laughs) That's snoozy. (laughs) No, really, I've got hidden talents. Maybe so. (laughs) I haven't the time to play (laughs) hide-and-seek. But, Mr. Goldwyn... Now, look, Jack, I'm a busy man. I know you are, Mr. Goldwyn, but it it isn't as though I'm pleading for a job. I made lots of pictures. Call up Warner Brothers. They'll be very happy to recommend me to you. They'll be happy to recommend me to anybody. (laughs) I mean, look, look, Mr. Goldwyn, if you'd only think it over, I promise you... Pardon me, Mr. Goldwyn. What is it now, Pat? We got to do something about the picture we're shooting on stage five. The script we have now is a little dated. The hero was a bombardier on a B-29. You're right. We should change it to something post-war, something civilian. Well, why don't you make him a tail gunner on a Studebaker? Uh, let me help you up, Pat. <laughs> He's a comedian. We'll talk about it later. Hmm. Tail gunner on a Studebaker. Well, I, I thought it was very funny, didn't it? Maybe so, Jack. In fact, I think you're very good on the radio. Radio, radio. I want pictures. Mr. Goldwyn, you've got to help me. I want to win an Academy Award. Jack, let's talk about it some other time. What? I'm very... I'm way behind my appointments. I spent the whole morning talking to Hoagie. Hoagie? Yes, Hoagie Michelson. <laughs> Goldwyn, that's Hoagie Carmichael. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, now getting back to me, Mr. Goldwyn, why can't you produce a picture that'll make me win the Academy Award? Why? Tell me why. Well, Jack, maybe I can. Let me see how I look without those thick glasses that you have on. Take them off. All right. There. Now, see how I look with my glasses off? See how blue my eyes are? You know, that'll help if we make it in Technicolor. And look how, look how long my lashes are. Real, too. As a matter of fact, Mr. Goldwyn... You can put your glasses back on. Mr. Goldwyn went out to lunch. <laughs> but how could he leave? I was standing against the door. He jumped out the window. <laughs> out the window? Let me see. He didn't get away, boss. I caught him. Well, hold him. I'll be right down. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Mr. Samuel Goldwyn for appearing on my program. His next release will be The Secret Life of Walter Mitty with my friend Danny Kay. I also want to thank Hoagie Carmichael, who appears with the courtesy of the makers of the Fifth Avenue Candy Bar. And ladies and gentlemen, be sure to listen in next Sunday as we haven't the slightest idea what we're going to do. Good night, folks.
from May of 1947. As originally heard on NBC, that was the Jack Benny program. And the guest star was Hoagie Carmichael. Hoagie Carmichael later wrote in his uh, autobiography that that whole night at the Academy Awards was a very weird night for him. And when Sam Goldwyn got up to introduce the cast of uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, he did indeed introduce him as Hugo Carmichael. But Carmichael later joked that that was probably the best thing that happened because uh, he got a lot of attention because it was the biggest laugh of the night at the Academy Awards. And as a result, Jack Benny had uh, both Goldwyn and Hugo Carmichael or Hoagie Carmichael on the show. Very funny. All right. The other night I started uh, playing some Herb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. And oh, man. I, I forgot how many great songs they had. But here was one of my my favorites. There, there was two or three instrumentals that were adapted as theme songs for various uh, shows back in the uh, 60s. And uh, this one is one of them. Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, and the name of that song was The Spanish Flea. And that one was uh, Joe Pine's theme song. Do you remember Joe Pine? On that same album, he had a, a really great album. It was called Whipped Cream and Other Delights, and it had the sexiest picture on the cover. And it really, it was a girl, a really pretty girl, covered in whipped cream. It wasn't really improper. It was just, it was suggestive, I guess. And boy, it was just, uh, for a teenage boy, it was, a, it was a pretty exotic album cover. 
Whipped Cream was the uh, theme song for the dating game. But this one was Joe Pine. I don't know if you remember Joe Pine. I don't think he was just in L.A. But he was a radio talk show host, and he was a conservative, one of the first. Only unlike the conservatives today, or at least some of them, who try to be funny or have a sense of humor, Joe Pine had no sense of humor. And uh, he would call you out and call you names. And if you disagreed with him, he'd call you an idiot. Then he, he got a television show, I remember. On radio, he was on KLAC in Los Angeles back when it was a uh, talk station. Then it went to country music. I don't know what it is today. But at any rate, he, he was a um, conservative talk show host. They called him Communicasters. It was one of the first uh, talk radio stations. They called it two-way radio. It was a very clever advertising campaign, two-way radio and communicasters. I always thought that was kind of brilliant. But Joe Pine, then he developed a TV show. And I remember one night we got tickets. We, we didn't get tickets. We were walking down Hollywood Boulevard or Sunset Boulevard, I guess it was, in front of uh, Channel 5 there. And they asked us if we'd like to come in and see the taping of his show. So, we, you know, it was starting like in five minutes and they didn't have enough people fill the audience. So, sure, yeah, we did that because I knew who Joe Pine was. Well, I thought... I would get to see the other side of Joe Pine. I had a feeling that in real life, you know, that this was an act he was putting on. Well, you know, he had two weird, really weird guests on there. And they their claim was that uh, if you had uh, enemas, it would help your health. Yeah, I know. It's a <laughs> Somehow they were in the impression that Joe Pine was going to just interview them about their new book about enemas. And he really laid into them. And I remember during the commercial, the two of them kind of approached him. Nobody else at home could hear, but we in the audience could hear. And they said, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? You know, you're, 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 you're attacking us. And Pine just sat there smoking a cigarette and blew smoke at them. Didn't say a word. And then as soon as they started taping again, he pointed at him. He said, don't try to talk to me during the commercial. He says, I'm not your friend. Don't try to talk to me. And I thought... Gee, many crickets, this guy really is a jerk. He, he, he just was not friendly at all. Remember, he had a, um, he had a prosthetic leg, which you would never know unless you actually saw him in person walking around. The other one that had that was Bill Cullen. One time I saw him, uh, host a, a game show in, uh, New York City when I was living in New York City. And we went to a taping of, I think it was Concentration, and he was the host there. And and uh, I had re- heard that he had had his prosthetic leg, and he walked, you know, with a cane and and kind of stiff legged. Joe Pine, that was uh, that was his theme song. Boy, that's quite a memory. I hadn't thought about Joe Pine in quite a while. <laughs>
that music before. It is time for a gun smoke, everybody. Time to go back to the middle of the 19th century in the Kansas Territory to Dodge City. The episode tonight has the whole cast in it. It's got Marshall, Dillon, and Chester, and Kitty and Doc. So let's, uh, let's listen in to this episode that was originally broadcast back in the summer of 1955 on July the 9th, to be exact, over on CBS. It was written by John Meston. It features, as we said, William Conrad, Parley Bear, Georgia Ellis, and Howard McNear, and also guests Vic Perrin and Harry Bartell. The name of this episode is Uncle Oliver. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Mr. Dillon? Ah, oh, sit down, Chester. Get yourself out of the sun. <laughs> it ain't only me you ought to get out of the sun. Oh, what do you mean? See them two fellows down the street there? You see them? Huh? Now, what about them? Well, they've been standing there most an hour, Mr. Dillon, arguing. And you've been listening to them for most an hour, huh? Oh, no, no. I, I was in Teeter's getting me a haircut. Oh. Uh, but I was watching them. Uh, the young one, he's the tall one. He don't say much. But the old one that keeps jabbering at him, I swear, I don't see how that boy can stand it. Well, all he has to do is walk off, you know. Yeah, I suppose. My, they sure do look like they never got far from the sod, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at that. Oh, he slammed that old fella into the wall. I knew he'd get enough sooner or later. He's hitting that old man again, Mr. Dunn. Yeah, they'll be using knives next. Come on. He stopped hitting him. He's he just kindly squeezing him now. Yeah. Okay, he, at least he made that old man quit talking at him. Well, that's one way of doing it. You know more about it, and I don't. Let me go. Why do you grab my rib? I'll crack your neck. He'll do it, too, Mr. Dillon. All right, turn him loose, fellow. What? I said turn him loose. Now. All right. You're meddling, mister. It's my business to meddle. I'm the marshal here. Marsh? That's right. Well, I wasn't hurting him none. 
You're all right, ain't you, Uncle Oliver? Little bear hug ain't gonna ruin me. He didn't mean nothing by it, Marshal. Didn't mean nothing by it? Why, he liked it. Killed you. Viney plays rough sometimes. You're his uncle, huh? Yeah, Viney's pa died not very long ago, and he he practically never did have ma, so I'm kind of taking care of him. Isn't he a little old and need taking care of? I think I'm 22. You don't understand. Viney's lived all his life out on the prairie. This is the first time he's come to a town, but he's going to make out fine. You'll see. Oh, Uncle Oliver. No, I mean it. you be an important man someday, Viney. As important as Marshal here. Hey, wait a minute. I got an idea. I know what it is, too, and I'd like it fine, Uncle Oliver. But I can't be Marshal. Now use your head. I am using it. Why can't you be Marshal? Because they got him, that's why. I don't mean right now. You got to learn how first. And you know how to learn how? By working for this, Marshal. You follow them around, now, help them out, find out all the things they done. Oliver. Ain't I right, Marshal? No. What's wrong with it? Now, for one thing, I don't need a helper. Oh, everybody can use a little help. Chester Proudfoot gives me all the help I need. What's Chester Proudfoot? I'm Chester Proudfoot, doggone it. Oh. Well, there you are, Uncle Oliver. There I am, nothing. What do you want me to do? Get rid of Chester Proudfoot, shoot him or something? Now, 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 here, now, look here. What kind of talk is that? Are you doing people crazy? Yeah, he's right, Viney. That's no way to talk. I'm surprised at you. You'd be more surprised if I did it, wouldn't you? Yeah, now... I'm going to find our wagon and get me some sleep. I'm tired of talking to you. He don't mean nothing by it, Marshal. He's young and hot-headed. Well, I sure hope you're right. He come to the city to make his way, and I'm trying to help him. I had nothing wrong with that. There is plenty wrong with that, the way he was talking. Well, no use arguing. I'm going to go do me some gambling now. I'll see y'all. I, why didn't they stay out on the prairie where they belong? I wouldn't worry about them, Chester. Well, you don't have to. It's me they was talking about. <laughs> Forget it. Come on, I'll buy you a beer. I thought you was taking Miss Kitty to dinner. Yeah, I am, but we got time for a drink. Well, I could sure use one. You want some more coffee, Kitty? Mm, no, thanks, Matt. Yeah. Uh, Tell me, did you find out their last name? Well, they didn't bother to tell me, but I ran into Moss Grimmick there, keeping their wagon at his stable, uh-huh. and uh, he said their name's Stang. Stang? Uh-huh. They sure sound like a great pair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe in a few weeks in Dodge, around people, they'll start acting more civilized. It sounds like they're just plain simple-minded to me. Yeah, you'll meet them. Oliver, anyway, he's a gambling man. <laughs> He is, huh? Yeah. What's his game, mumbly peg? Uh, he might surprise you, Kitty. Oh, maybe. From what I've heard about him, he won't surprise any dealers I know. Uh-uh. Huh? What? You're about to meet Viney now. Oh. Marshal? Ah, hello, Viney. Uh, I don't aim to bust in on you and this lady Marshal. That's but... all right. I wanted to tell you something. Uh, uh, this is Miss Russell Viney Stang. How do you do, lady? How do you do? 
It's about that job, Marshal, working for you. <laughs> well, I, I thought we'd been through that, Ronnie. I'm worried you might let Uncle Oliver talk you into something. Well, you can stop worrying. What I come to tell you is I changed my mind. I don't want that job. Well, that's fine, Viney. You don't get it. I don't want no part of it. That's what I come to tell you. Uh, uh, Viney, you can quit worrying about the job. It isn't there. Now, uh, why don't you go to work for some freighter or a stable or something, huh? I just might do that, Marshal. I've been thinking on it. Well, good, good, fine. Like you say, plum sorry busting in on you this way. I'll be going. You didn't do him justice, Matt. It'd take two of them to be simple-minded. I'm not so sure, Kitty. Uh, what do you mean, Matt? Nobody could be as simple as Viney. Not even Viney. Evening, Chester. Mm, things seems to be pretty quiet tonight. Uh, that's why I came back to the office. There's nothing doing on the street. Mm. They say there's a big Texas herd arriving in a couple of days. Oh? Uh -huh. About 5,000 head. Well, that ought to wake Dodge up. And keep it up. Yeah. I bet them cussed cowboys out there on the prairie right now figuring out some new way to tear this town apart. Yeah, they'd have to be pretty smart to do that. Mm, yes, sir. Oh, uh, I, I throwed the mail on your desk there, Mr. Dillon. No? Oh, yeah, I see it. Thanks. Uh, I'm going out back a minute. Okay. Chester! Chester! Hey, Chester! What's going on down there, Matt? What? Well, I don't know, Doc. You see Chester from up there? Oh, there's somebody lying in the high grass out there. Huh? Where? I'm pointing, Matt. Oh, What's happened? It's Chester, Doc. He's been shot. Chester, you've been... Give him up here to my office. Now hurry up. I'll get things ready. There was nothing to do but forget about the gunman and carry Chester up to Doc's. He was still unconscious when I got him there. And after Doc took a look at the crease in his head, he wouldn't even guess how much longer he'd stay that way. And of course I knew now why Viney Stang had come up to me at the restaurant, made such a big point about not wanting Chester's job. He was planning all the time to shoot him. So I went out after Viney, and I went almost everywhere. But I didn't find him. 
Finally, I tried the Long Branch, where I thought Oliver might be gambling, and that maybe he could lead me to it. Evening, Matt. Hello, Kitty. <laughs> you look like you're about to strike. I am. Anybody in particular? Viney Stang. Huh? He ambushed Chester a while ago. Oh, no. Matt, he, he didn't... No, Chester's still unconscious, Kitty, but Doc thinks he's going to pull through. You're sure it was Viney did it? Sure enough to be looking for him. Last I saw him was in the restaurant. I thought Oliver might know something about him. Has he been in here? Oh, he was till about an hour ago. He got sleepy. What? Well, that's what he said. He went out back, said he was going to have himself a nap. On the ground? Well, I'd be surprised if he ever slept in the bed. Yeah, you may be right. Well, he had supper out there, too. He quit the faro table and went to the bar and got some beer, and then he pulled some jerky out of his pocket and went out back to eat and sleep the whole thing off. Nothing's too good for Oliver. Well, I hope he won't mind my disturbing him. Uh, Matt, I'm, I'm going to go over to Doc's and see if there's anything I can do. Yeah, you tell him I'll be by later, huh? Yeah, all right. Uh, Oliver, come on. Wake up. Hello, Marshal. Wake up. I want to talk to you. Yeah, come on. Sure, sure. I'm awake. Come on. Man, got to get a little sleep now and then. Where's Viney, Oliver? Viney? I don't know. When did you see him last? Why, this afternoon. You haven't seen him since? No. What do you want him for, Marshal? Something wrong? Chester's been shot. No. Ambushed. Ambushed? That's right. Well, you think Viney did it, huh? Well, he didn't, Marshal. Viney never killed nobody in his life. I didn't say he killed him. What? I said he shot him. Hit him in the head. Chester's still unconscious. He ain't dead. You seem disappointed. Now, look here, Marshal. We Stangs don't go around shooting people. I won't stand for nobody saying we do. I want Viney, Oliver, and you're going to help me find him. You know his ways, you know where he might be. Viney didn't do it. He threatened to. And tonight he tried to fool me. Said he didn't want Chester's job. Chester doesn't have any other enemies I know of. Are you going to help me find Viney, or I'll let you wait in jail till I find him? Now, you take your choice. Jail? That's right. You said Chester ain't come to. What's that got to do with it? Well, if he dies, that'll be real bad, won't it? Yeah, real bad. Marshal, if Vine had done it, I'm as strong against him as you are, blood kin or not. I'll help you find him. I sure will. Look in the oasis here, Marshal. This is the last place I can think of where he might be. Any particular reason why he'd be in here? It's the littlest ragtailedest saloon in town. Can't be many people in there. Vine is more at home where there ain't too many people. All right, I'll go in first, Oliver. Sure. There's nobody here but the bartender. He's asleep. 
Well, let's wake him up and ask him. No, it wouldn't do any good. They don't talk to the law in this place. Come on. I'm just plumb confounded, Marshal. I don't know where to look now. We've been everywhere that boy might be. Maybe. Well, you think of some place in. You think of it, Oliver. I'm going back and see how Chester's coming along. You talk like you don't believe me. I believe you when you find Viney. All right, I'll find him. I'll look all night if I have Not to. all night, Oliver. It's about 10 o'clock now. You look till midnight. What do you mean? Have Viney in my office by midnight. Now, see, you don't believe me. I believe you. I just think you might have better luck without me hanging around. If he did it, I want him caught bad as you do. I told you that. And if he didn't do it, he's probably got a good alibi. But you find him. And don't you run. I'll track you down if it takes all year. Marshal, you're terrible wrong about me. I'll be waiting in my office, Oliver. Come in, Matt. Come in, come in. I got chest in the back room. How is he, Doc? Oh, I can't say for sure yet, but my guess is he's going to be all right. It'll take time, though, of course. Well, as long as he makes it. Uh, is he conscious? No, not now. But you mean he was? Well, he came to about a half an hour ago. He wasn't very clear, of course, but he was mumbling something. He got his eyes open for a few seconds. Didn't last long. He passed out right away again. What was he mumbling about? Did you catch any of it? Well, it was about the shooting. He saw who it was, Matt. He did? Mm-hmm. But he didn't get the name out of Viney's or anybody else's. Oh. I asked him, but he passed out again before he could say it. I, uh... I don't suppose there's any way of telling how long it'll be before he comes around again. Huh? Oh, no, no. No way in the world. Might be in an hour and might not be for a day or two. Uh-huh. But he did see who it was. Oh, yeah, sure. But he didn't say who. So, that's no help. Yes, it is, Doc. How? If Chester saw Viney, then Viney must know he did. And he won't make him feel very easy. Well, you've got him in jail, haven't you? No. But it won't take long now. Oh, and Doc, while I'm gone, you lock this door and you keep it locked, huh? Sure, Matt, yes. Hello, Oliver. I ain't found him yet, Marshal, but I'm going to. Uh, how's Chester? Al Doc thinks he's going to be all right. He came to a minute or so. He did? Yeah, long enough to tell Doc he saw who shot him. But he didn't get the name out. Oh. When he does, it's all the evidence I'll need to put Viney in prison for a long time. 
But there's one good thing. If Chester don't die, Viney don't hang. What I'm worried about is that he's bound to hear Chester's still alive and try to finish him off before he can talk. Marshal, I swear I'll run him down before he does anything like that. He's in bad enough trouble now. Yeah, the way things are, I'm not going to wait for you to do it alone. You look where you think best, Oliver. I'm going to cover the south side of town again. If you find him, you take him to my office and wait. Okay, Marshal. All right, let's get started. As I left Oliver and walked down Front Street, I noticed a figure standing in the shadows directly across from where we'd been talking. I guessed it was Viney, but I couldn't be sure. And at the moment, it didn't matter much anyway. I walked on a ways. Then I ducked up an alley and ran around back to the rear of Doc's place. A handful of pebbles brought him to his window, and he lowered the fire rope for me, and I was soon inside. We pulled the rope up and locked the window, and then went into the front office to wait. The door's still locked, Matt. He can't get in. Yeah, he'll knock, Doc. When he does, you open the door fast and get behind it and stay there. <laughs> yes, I'll stay there, all right. Matt, are you sure Viney's coming up here? He's got to shut Chester up before it's too late, doesn't he? But he must know I'm here with Chester. Yeah, that's right, Doc. Oh, oh, you mean he aims to walk in here and shoot me, too? You must be tired tonight, Doc. Watch yourself, Matt. All right, go ahead. Open it. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. Doc, where are you? All right, drop it. No. Doc, he's through. Why, Matt, it's Oliver. Yeah. Wait a minute. Who's that? Stand back, Doc. I'm sure. You, You went and killed Uncle Oliver. I had to, Vanny. Well, why didn't you wait? I'd have stopped him. Then why didn't you stop him downstairs? I couldn't get over there fast enough. Where have you been, Viney? Uncle Oliver told me to go wait for him by the river this evening. But I figured he was up to something. And then I heard about Chester and I knew... I've been following them ever since. I was afraid to show myself. I, I thought you'd shoot me, Marshal, just like you shot him. I told you I had to shoot him. But he was only trying to help me like he promised Pa he would. He tried too hard. All I want... All I want is to go home. I didn't want Chester's job. I... I told you that. Don't you even remember? Yeah, I remember. 
But you forgot something, Viney. What? You forgot to tell your Uncle Oliver. Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin and Harry Bartell. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Smoke again next week, transcribed for L&M Filters. It was originally heard on a summer evening back on July the 9th of 1955. The name of that episode was Uncle Oliver on Gunsmoke. The sweet, sweet memories you gave of me You can't beat the memories you gave of me Take one fresh and tender kiss Add one stolen night of bliss One girl one boy, some grief, some joy, memories are made of this. Don't forget a small moonbeam. Fold in lightly with a dream. Your lips and mine. Two sips of wine Memories are made of this Then add the wedding bells The one house where lovers dwell Three little kids for the flavor Stir carefully through the day See how the flavor stays These are the dreams You will savor With sweet, sweet his blessings you from above You can't beat the memories you gave of me Serve it generously with love You can't beat the memories you gave of me One man, one wife one love through life, man. Memories are made of this. Memories you gave me. Memories.
was Dean Martin singing a song that this uh, show is all about, Memories. And now here's Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass big song from the uh, mid-60s. think it's time to wrap things up for another week, so let's put the shows back in the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Hey, you guys stay cool. My goodness, stay cool. It is it is hot out there. Isn't it funny how every summer we talk about how, well, if I had to choose between hot and cold, I'd rather be cold. But then in the dead of winter, you say, well, if I had to choose between hot and cold, I'd rather be hot. Well, I like spring and fall. Then I'm looking out my window here in my little mini studio and looking out in the woods and I am seeing all kinds of fireflies. Love fireflies. That is just one of the coolest things that God did for us was give us fireflies. All right, I gotta get out of here. I'm all out of time. 
This is Bob Bro at Boomer Boulevard. So glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. folks enjoyed yourselves. Catch you later on down the trail. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.